Jonah's flight really concentrated on verse 1 and 2 and then chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 as well in regards to Jonah and I think the overall uh, book someone sent me I think Teresa sent me or not Teresa but uh, Jessica Williams sent me a little a little seven minute video of a little girl who had memorized the story of Jonah uh, and she she took a little bit of maybe some artistic license but she she done an excellent job with that and I sent it my, to my Jessica this evening I said here's this morning's message <laughs> um, so so maybe I'll be a little longer than seven minutes but I'm not sure I'll do it much better than she did um, but I was concentrating on that as I was listening to her do that um, her great emphasis was on Jonah it seemed in some ways and and the more I read the book and the more I go through the book of Jonah the real the real object uh, the real subject of the book is the mercy of God uh, I think the nature of God, the sovereignty of God is definitely on display here as well, even down to the controlling of a fish and the activities and movements of a fish. Uh, but I think even in the life of Jonah and the crew of the ship that he takes, uh, all these things, the mercy of God is being manifested. And so that's kind of the theme that I'm carrying with me as I go through this book. But I'm picking up mainly in chapter 1, verse 3, and then a few references from the further ones. So let's read from verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, as Brother Mike's corrected me there, um, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and had fallen asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us that we will not perish. Uh, we know, learn later on that they were all praying to their gods. So whatever deity you recognize, this is certainly a time to be praying. So he really approaches Jonah in that way as well. But what I want to think about tonight is just the, the futility of the flight uh, of Jonah. Um, that was really significant as you look through those um, in the ver very first verse or in chapter th 1 verse 3 but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord uh, the, the very word but uh, really draws a contrast there in many ways it's contrasted by and even contrary to the word of the Lord he has received in verse 1 the word of the Lord and 2 arise go to Nineveh the great city and cry against it that's the mandate uh, and then you hear the word, but uh, the idea is, but contrary to that, he doesn't say, and he rose up uh, because we could have seen that that was a natural consequence of having here in the word of the Lord, we rise up and we, we act in obedience. And so the very word, but there indicates to us that Jonah is about to act contrary to what he's just heard. And secondly, there, uh, I thought about this, but what the, what the heart settles on will eventually manifest itself in the actions taken. Uh, and what I'm saying that for is later on, he actually admits. Uh, in fact, there's a, a, a bit of a dilemma for Jonah, but later on, he admits that the reason that he was uh, reluctant to obey God and carry this message was that his hope was that he could forestall 
the very acts of God. After citing that he knew God was a compassionate, merciful God and slow to anger, well, my reason for not wanting to go, the disposition of my heart, was I was hoping that by my disobedience, I could forestall your granting repentance to the Ninevites. And so he's got that issue and that's a, that's a conviction of his own heart and, and the disposition of his heart. But in chapter one, verse nine, whenever the sailors, after the storm comes and the sailors come to him and inquire of him, asking him who he is, where he's from, what's his occupation, he says something else here. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah's in a real predicament here. Uh, he has a divided heart, as it were. There is, on the one hand, this conviction, I believe, in Jonah and the fear of the Lord. He knows that the Lord is the creator of the sea and the land and the, all things. And the, he, he has this sensibility to the greatness of God. On the other hand, he also has a disposition to, of hatred towards the Ninevites. He don't want them rescued. He don't want them to repent. He wants God's judgment upon Nineveh. And so he has a real issue there. And my point in that is that the disinclination of the heart uh, is not neutrality. Uh, notice that's the position of his heart. But then it says, but he rose up. And so that gives the idea if he was stirred now to action by the disposition of his heart. Uh, and that's an important point, I think, because you can't, you can't, the disposition of your heart will manifest itself in your activity. It's not neutral. It doesn't mean that you're neutral. If God says, do this, and you don't want to do it, uh, you're not just maintaining some neutrality in this desire not to do the thing that God has called you to do. It will manifest itself in action at some point, and it did in the life of Jonah. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, and Jonah, at the same time, had the fear of the Lord. So Jonah didn't have many options before him, but it moved him to act upon that. And that's a real warning for us in regards to Jonah's life, as you saw in chapter 4, verse 2, and then again in chapter 1, verse 9. And so what, what is his uh, alternative here? Well, he takes flight. Not only does he rise up, but he flees away. He takes flight. He didn't rise or stir himself to obedience. Rather, he rose up intent on disobedience. Uh, it's interesting later on that he says uh, he rose up and fled to Tarshish. He goes down to Joppa, finds a ship going to Tarshish. The implication is, where can I go? And I decided on Tarshish, so I'm going to go down to Joppa and find a ship to Tarshish. He doesn't go to Joppa and say, what's the farthest ship you got going away? Okay, that's where I go. He seems to have concluded that Tarshish is where he wanted to go. And so here's a disposition of a heart now that's manifested itself in the idea of fleeing or flying away. And I say futility because we're going to see it unfold to the fact that it didn't do him any good at all to try to fly or to flee away. The idea that he rose up seems suggestive to me of more than just a physical stirring. Perhaps the language itself is indicative of a rebellious spirit here, a rising up, as it were, of his own, of his own will and defiance in regards to following the obedience or the commands of God in his own life. So Judas takes this flight in that moment. He rose up to flee to Tarshish. My emphasis there is that he's flying away. He's not interested in stirring himself unto obedience. I think sometimes even if we feel a reluctance in our heart, uh, we ought to check that, recognize that reluctance to obey God and by the spirit and through the truth of the word, stir ourselves towards obedience. 
rather than stirring ourselves up towards disobedience. And that's exactly what Jonah seems to have done. In fact, he rises up with the very intent to flee away from that, uh, to Tarshish. Uh, it's interesting in his rebellion, uh, he has that divided heart. Uh, in some ways, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9 assures him that he dare not defy openly God. But then chapter 4, verse 2 assures him that he cannot, in his own heart, uh, go to Nineveh and do the thing which might result in the repentance of Nineveh. So he don't have any alternative but to flee. He's going away. He's not going to stand up and openly defy God. He fears the Lord. He, he, he's not there to do that. So he's not going to say, Lord, I will not go. But at the same time, he's not going. He's already concluded, I'm not going to Nineveh. There's no way I'm going to Nineveh because the Nineveh, Ninevites need to be destroyed. And so now he has left only to him this option to run away from it all, to get away from the presence of God. In fact, is what he is actually doing, his resolution uh, interestingly enough, uh, I was thinking about when I was reading this, the psalm, Psalm 139, but the psalmist is in a kind of a different context, uh, really praising the omniscience and omnipresence of God. But the psalmist writes in verse 7 there, where can I go from your spirit? Or literally, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. And so the psalmist is acknowledging there, where are you going to run from the presence of God? Where are you going to go? If God has called Jonah to this ministry and, the, and Jonah's heart is disinclined to, to obey this calling of God to this particular ministry, the real issue that Jonah ought to have taken to the Lord is, Lord, my heart's not in this. And maybe that could have been worked out. But Jonah's alternative, rather than defy God and rather than to obey God, he decides to run away from God. So, so where does he go to get away from the presence of the Lord? Where would you go? Where would you go? Um, you see the futility of that? The psalmist makes it clear. There's nowhere you can go. In fact, the shoal there in the psalm really literally means the grave in some ways. If I, if I get buried in the ground and put in the grave, I can't get away from the presence of the Lord. If I send to heaven, he's there. No matter what I do, wherever I go, if I sprout wings and fly all the way to the setting of the sun or the rising of the sun, all the way as far as the horizon, when I get there, he's already there. There's nowhere you can go to escape the presence of the Lord. So there's, there's another dilemma for Jonah here. He's going to try it. Uh, let me ask you this. How often have you tried it? Uh, you ever put God off and uh, distracted yourself? I have this uh, uncanny habit to get myself really, really busy when God starts pressing on me about something. I'll find something else that's pressing, something that's really urgent. I'll get back with that. I'll get back to you, God, on that later. But right now, these need to be taken care of. And so I kind of justify a flight uh, on the basis of my uncomfortableness with what God's calling me to do in that particular moment. That's the dilemma I think that, that Jonas, uh, Jonah has. Notice as well his destination in verse 3. He's going to Tarshish, as I said, from the presence of the Lord. I was doing a little map research here in Tarshish from Nineveh to Joppa was 500 miles. And so if he was in Nineveh and went down to Joppa, that's 500 miles. It's believed he was in the area of Nazareth, perhaps, in Israel. So, uh, but from Nineveh to Joppa is 500 miles. From Joppa to Tarshish is 2,000 miles. In fact, uh, as I was reading, Tarshish was the westernmost expanse of the, pretty much the known world. 
As far as they knew, there was nobody, uh, there was nobody navigating the Atlantic, and, and Tarsus was almost, uh, almost to Spain near the Rock of Gibraltar. So you couldn't, imagine, you couldn't imagine anywhere farther away from the place that God had called him to go. I want you to go to Nineveh. Jo- Jonah essentially said to himself, how far can I get from Nineveh? And Tarsus was how far? And that's why I think he had already concluded, I want to go as far away from the presence of God as possible. What is that? Tarsus. And so he goes down to Joppa and he starts looking for a ship that's heading to Tarsus. And sure enough, he finds one. Isn't it funny how providence provides the way of escape uh, even as we take our flights? But that's exactly what he wanted to do. He wanted to get as far away from Tarsus as he could, or from Nineveh as he could. So he goes down to Joppa, finds a ship going to Tarsus, paid the fare, went down into the, into, with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Uh, it's it's kind of sad for me to, to think about or to try to put myself in the shoes of Jonah here. Uh, I, can, I can relate to it in the fact that I sometimes flee, if not, if not physically, uh, I flee emotionally or spiritually or in some other way. I, I resist or I ignore the thing God's really pressing me on. Uh, so I can kind of relate to jo- Jonah here, but this is exactly what he's doing. God has, God has a plan to extend mercy. By the way, uh, as I shared this morning, Jonah's message was not to Nineveh to repent. However, the 40 days must have, been, must have been taken by Jonah to realize that there's something going on. In other words, if the decree had gone out that Nineveh was to be judged and to be condemned, then why wait 40 days? Just unleash the wrath of God, destroy the nation of Nineveh. God, the fact that God gives them 40 days warning that it's going to be destroyed in, jo- in Jonah's mind must have indicated that God is about to extend mercy or at least offering mercy here and repentance. And not only that, but later on when they do repent, you remember the king uh, has everyone fasting and his, his answer is perhaps God will relent concerning this decree. And so the king apparently thinks that the 40 days warning is at least a window that God might indeed be merciful. And of course, they all repent and we know what happens here. So Jonah, Jonah knows that that's a possibility. And so he goes as far in the other direction as he can. He knows he can't get away from God. God is sovereign. God is, uh, God is to be feared in heaven and earth and all creation. So I don't think Jonah has a bad theology here. What Jonah has is a, is a fleshly heart in regards to the, to the Ninevites. Uh, we, uh, we talk a lot, uh, this is kind of a side talk, but I was thinking about sometimes how, I told Hope this, but I said, you ever notice how we would like to do the works of God without the heart of God? Uh, we would like to mimic the works of Christ without the heart of Christ. And I'm thinking about love there in particular, but this compassion and this love of God. Uh, and there's no doubt that uh, I wondered about this, but had Jonah been said, had God said to Jonah, you go to Nineveh and you tell them that destruction is today. And it may have been a great pleasure of Jonah in a nation hated so much and so much of an, op- an enemy of Israel to go and, and to say to them, God's destruction is coming upon you. I'm out of here. Uh, it was that 40 days and that suspicion that there may be a window here of mercy and of compassion towards the Ninevites that bothered Jonah the most. 
And so I don't think Jonah would have had a problem at all in announcing the condemnation of Nineveh. What he had a problem with was the possibility that God may extend mercy to Nineveh. And he didn't like that. Uh, let me just kind of jump ahead here because God's about to show, I think God's about to show Jonah what mercy is all about. Uh, I think Jonah's flight, God is allowing for his flight. Uh, I was thinking about Tarshish as well, but the reasoning of Jonah might have been, if I can sail to Tarshish, I think I figured this up, but at, but at three knots, or say you covered, I think at three knots, maybe four knots, you can cover 100 miles. If he was going slower than that, if he covered 60 miles a day roughly, uh, it might take him close to 40 days even to get there. It would certainly be beyond the 40 days to get there and then to come back. So Jonah may have said, I'll go as far away as I can. And if the Lord arrests me and sends me back, by the time I get back, the 40 days are over. They hadn't heard the message. They're getting destroyed. Uh, he may have even thought in those terms. I won't go. Therefore, God won't send the message and, they, and they'll be destroyed without having heard the warning. So I'll go so far away that it'll take longer for me to get back than it would for God, um, than, than God's timeline. And then God will be bound by his own timeline and he'll have to destroy the Israelites. Uh, maybe he thought he had God in a bind there by his flight. We don't know uh, ultimately what his flight was for other than what he says to forestall God's uh, extending of mercy to them as well. But notice here, he rose up, he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa, he finds a ship which was going to Tarshish, and there he paid the fare and went down into that ship. I've heard sermons and probably been many sermons in regards to the cost uh, of Jonah's ticket on this ship that was to take him away from the presence of the Lord. Now, the futility of that compared to the cost that he would pay. I don't know what the ticket was. The little girl in that video, um, she portrays Jonah as saying, here, I just want to get away. I'll give you all the money I've got. Just let me own this ship. Well, that may be true. That would have been quite a voyage. I don't know what the fare would have been for a 2,000-mile journey from Joppa. But the cost was severe, whatever it was monetarily, whatever the cost was monetarily for Jonah to board that ship, the cost was incredible. In fact, whatever the resources he lost for this voyage were probably significant. But what was more incredible was the losses that he would suffer or the consequences, even to his own life. Look in chapter 1. Uh, you see, uh, finally, he says in chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and verse 15 as well. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. In verse 15, they picked him up and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. So the cost for Jonah for this futile flight away from the word of God was, was really, were it not for the mercy of God, would have been the very life of Jonah. So that's, that's significant enough of a cost. Uh, that's, the, that's the cost of the... And it's extraordinary given the futility of it. And I wonder even if it wasn't in Jonah's mind. Do you really think you can escape the presence of the Lord? Is God not active in, in, in Tarshish? Is he, is he incapable of reaching out to Tarshish? So I'm going to go somewhere and get out from under the presence of the Lord. I, it's hard for me to believe that Jonah really in, the, in his heart of hearts and in his theology believed that. But yet he did it. He did it. 
He, he took action to do the very thing that would seem ridiculous that he could get out from under the purview or even the sovereignty of God Almighty. So he goes down, he finds a ship going to the farthest destination in the known world. Nobody could possibly find him there. God's judgment may fall upon Nineveh, but it would be of no, no relevance to him because he would be so far. It's, it's ridiculous to think that that was going to be the case. He was not going to escape the presence of God, yet he was willing to pay a price, even up to the cost of his own life. To Jonah's credit, uh, later on we'll cover this, but to Jonah's credit, he at least acknowledges in the ship the storm and the hand of God and the presence of God has brought this storm upon the ship because I am a prophet in defiance of God, that I am a prophet disobeying the, the word of his master here. And so I'm the source of this distress that you're enduring. So what's the solution, Jonah? Throw me overboard, my life. My life is the solution. Here's, here's what's interesting to me. The key, the key to the mercy of God upon the, the crew of the ship was the life of Jonah. Your mercy is contingent. God's mercy in this storm upon you, crew, is contingent upon my life being sacrificed. And so they're reluctant to do that at first. This is innocent blood. I, we're not throwing you overboard. It's a raging sea. There's, there's, it goes against our nature to do that. And he insists. And so they, for the desire for mercy, they follow the prophet's advice and they throw him over the sea after offering up a prayer of forgiveness or, or forgiveness beforehand for what we're about to do. And as immediately, immediately upon them casting him to the sea, the sea becomes calm. They receive mercy at the cost of a life. They received mercy at the cost of Jonah's life. So Jonah paid with his life. He also paid in the consequences they lost. You remember early on when the storm started, what did they do? The ship was a cargo ship. That was a main trade route. In fact, Solomon, I think, had set up fleets that would travel that distance and bring back spices and all sorts of things. So there was a trade going on from Jerusalem, from Israel, all the way down into that range and all the way back. And so, so there's a, this is a trade route. This is a cargo ship. And so part of the cost, the fare paid by jo Jonah was the cargo of the ship, the, the prosperity and the livelihood of those sailors and, and whoever was the owner of the ship who was making a profit in this trade. So it cost them materially the cargo of the ship. We don't know how much they threw over. Did they throw it all over? Perhaps. In fact, if your ship's about to go down and all lives are going to be lost, there's no cargo on board the ship worth your life. You're going to get rid of it all. We see that in the book of Acts, you remember, when Paul is traveling. They began first by lightening the ship, taking the ship off, especially a grain ship because if grain gets wet, it gets way heavier and now the ballast of the ship is heavier and the likelihood of sinking is even more. So they began to jettison the cargo. That's a pretty high cost. It's a pretty high cost and it can be attributed to Jonah. It's part of the fare. It's part of the cost of fleeing from God. Not only do you put your own life in jeopardy, but you put the livelihoods of those around you and your associates in jeopardy as well. Not only their livelihood, but their lives. I mean, the ship, it says in chapter four, uh, one, verse four, there was a great storm in the sea. The ship was about to break apart. I mean, they, they weren't throwing this stuff overboard for nothing. The ship was riding low in the water, taking on water, and they hoped to lighten the ship. They were in a dire situation, and it's, it's 
Every life on the ship was subject to being lost in, 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 as a result of this single disobedience of Jonah. Uh, one of the things that communicates to me is that your disobedience to God and mine is not in a vacuum. There are people who will suffer consequences for my rebellion against God. I remember as a young man, my rebellion against God. Had, it had a cost to my mom particularly, but to my family as well and to every relationship. Yeah, I was putting my own life at jeopardy, but my rebellion brought consequences upon them as well. In fact, I've shared my testimony before. What drove me mad the most is the unconditional love of a mother who I knew was suffering as a result of my sinfulness, but yet refused to, refused to give me my just rewards, which would have been her hatred. She loved me in spite of the fact that I was doing things that was harming her, and, that, and I couldn't stomach that. In fact, I went out of my way to try to make her hate me for the things because in my mind, that's the just, that would be the just response for my sinning and my rebellion, which is causing my family so much pain. I ought to be hated and you're not hating me. And so I need to make you hate me. And you see there, my point is there are extraordinary costs in this rebellion against God or this resistance to God. You think running from God about the sin that he might be convicting you of is a light thing? It's not a light thing at all. Not only are you suffering, but those around you are, being, are suffering as a consequence of that. And that circle will grow larger and larger the more, the more stridently we hold to that sinfulness, the more we embrace that rebellion and that resistance to God. I love Hebrews where it talks about the discipline of God not being pleasant for the moment, but but it produces a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who yield to it. It's a, the loving discipline of a father. And I, I see that's what's happening in Jonah's life here. God, God has recognized that he's called this prophet to go to Nineveh and declare his message. But this prophet's heart is not right. And rather than go declare the message and pray that God would help him get his heart right, Jonah begins to act according to his heart's inclination. And there's a problem in the heart of Jonah and God's dealing with that problem. And it, he's going to overcome, by the way, he's going to overcome the disobedience and ultimately send him back. And, and Jonah is going to adjust. He's going to do the thing that God had called him to do and declare the message. But we see that the heart issue is not over. Because whenever he goes upon the hill later on and he sees that there's not destruction, he becomes angry about that. And God confronts him about that. Jonah, why are you angry? And so his heart issue is not completely cured even yet. And so God unfolds a lot of other incidents that we'll look at later on that point out more and more to Jonah. Jonah, you're upset because I am a compassionate God. I'm a God who extends mercy. You're upset about that, Jonah. That's not reasonable. There is a heart issue going on there. So Jonah was paying the price himself and the price, his cost for his fare to run from God and to go away from the presence of God was costing everybody around him, even at risk of their own lives. Notice as well the exhausting effort of it all. He writes here in verse 5, Then the sailors, when the storm came up, the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So there's a general, general panic aboard ship. 
Uh, if you've ever been aboard ship, there are some things that happen aboard ship that are critical to the life of the ship. When I was in the service, the one thing that we feared the most at sea was a fire. Uh, a fire could be big, big, big trouble at sea. In fact, we were in the Indian Ocean one time and, and something happened and we went dead in the water. And so for about 24 hours, there was a U.S. Navy ship with 400 men aboard uh, that was uncontrollable drifting in the Indian Ocean. And you talking about panic, you talking about urgency. There was a real urgency there. We weren't in rough seas, but had we been in heavy seas, completely without control of any rudder or engine power at all, every man on that ship would know that his life was in peril. There is an urgency. That's what you see happening here. This crew, they were, they were in damage control mode. This ship was tossing and turning and this great storm had come upon them suddenly and waves were crashing over the side and the ship was riding low in the water and they were operating according to the best navigational practices to lighten the ship. Perhaps they were trying to throw ropes underneath to make sure the hull held together. They were, they were exerting every effort whatsoever to save the ship and all the lives aboard, including Jonah's. And it's just striking to me that it says, but Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and had fallen asleep. Uh, I'm not sure that that's an indication of some indifference by Jonah as much as it is the, the spiritual and mental exhaustion of running from God. Let me say, and you can give an amen, I know that. It will wear you out. You will be physically exhausted. You will be emotionally exhausted. And in, in the midst of the greatest crises, you will be so exhausted, you will lay down and just the reprieve of a moment of unconscious sleep will be to you as a, as a, as a gallon of water in the middle of a desert. And that's what I think is going on here with Jonah. He's, he's gone down into the ship. He knows he's running from God. I think in his, dip, in his heart of hearts, he knows it's futility. I think he knows there are even going to be consequences involved. He don't have any idea that it's going to be the cost of his life or the, or the cost of the, the, the cargo of the ship or the cost of the sailors' lives. He don't have any idea of the depth of the consequences, but he knows there'll be some. Don't you? Don't you as a Christian? If you know that God wants you to do something and to move in a certain direction and you're reluctant to do that, it's hard or it's uncomfortable or it's difficult or it's, or it's not something I really want to do and you're resisting the Lord. Aren't As a Christian, don't you know in your heart of hearts that that is not going to work? You know that God loves you too much to let you off the hook in regards to his sanctifying work in your heart. His aim is your joy in the transformation of you into the image of Christ. He's not going to relent. Thank God he doesn't. Right? Because if he did, I would, be, I would never progress towards Christ-likeness at all in my life because I've never willingly walked into the hard things in my life. God providentially has brought me to those places and then the crucifying effect of those times has been the, has been the catalyst which, with which God has transformed me more towards Christ-likeness. But it's exhausting. And we know that in our hearts of hearts. In fact, if we're there today, if you're there at this moment, you know that there is a date out there somewhere where your strength to do this will finally be exhausted. You just won't be able to sustain this. 
And you know that that's the day that you'll be finally broken. And you're putting it off as long as you do. But you know inevitably that if you belong to God, he will not let that rebellion continue in your life. And he will bring that to a conclusion. Why we push that off, I never have understood in myself. Why do we do that? Why, would it, why do we put off the inevitable breaking of ourselves? Why not yield now and acknowledge to the Lord that, Lord, I don't know how to deal with my own heart. It's hardened here. I'm resistant to your will in my life. I'm resistant to your word in my life. And I don't want it to be that way. And I know that the outcome and the consequences are going to be severe the longer I resist this. So, Lord, bring about in my heart a repentance and a, and a conviction now to be obedient to you in this area of my life, in Jonah's case, in his mission. So here's a man running from God, an exercise of futility. He knows he's, gonna, he's, he's exhausted, he's going to be worn out. He knows there is going to be a cost for this rebellion to be paid. He does not yet know what that cost is. Notice, we'll read some of what it is. So the captain, verse 6, approaches him. And he asks him when he finds him sleeping a, a legitimate question. How? He doesn't say why. He says, how are you sleeping? I, I got used to the notion to sleeping in a certain seas. I could sleep like a baby. In fact, where I slept, my ear wasn't far from the hole of the ship. And I could literally hear water racing by my head when we were underway. And it was just like rocking a baby to sleep. But I've been in seas 40-foot swells and pitching. And there's no way you can sleep in that. Well, that's essentially what Jonah was dealing with. Everybody else is panicked, trying to save the ship. He comes down, finds Jonah sleeping, and he doesn't say, why are you asleep? He says, how are you sleeping? Well, we know the answer. I think he was absolutely exhausted, as I've shared. But he says to him, get up, call on your God. Notice little g in, in the American translation there. So, so I don't think the... the, the the sailor here is particularly religious or the captain. He's probably superstitious and religious in his own way. And the whole crew probably had all sorts of different tribal deities and God. And according to him, this is just another person on the ship that's paid the fare. And he ought to be up at, at the very minimum if he's not a sailor and don't know what to do at a very minimum. He ought to be crying out to whoever the God is that he worships. Because if we ever need anything in this situation, it's the help of every God available. So Jonah, how in the world are you sleeping? Get up, Jonah, and start praying to your God that we might be delivered. Perhaps, he says, your God will be concerned about us that we will not perish. Notice now the unfolding of this. Each man said to his mate, come now, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots. And again, in demonstration of the providence of God, the lot fell on Jonah. So they had a superstitious way of determining what's the source of the, this sudden storm upon us and this risking and peril of our life. What is the cause of this? What has brought this upon us? Well, let's use the only thing we know. We cast lots. Well, God is exercising a providential sovereignty, as it were, even over the superstitious practice of men. So they cast the lots, and sure enough, the lot shows up. There's the problem, Jonah. The lot fell on Jonah. I wondered when that happened if Jonah didn't realize, well, the Lord's closing in. Uh, this is not going to go on much longer. The storm came on behalf of me. I'm down here in the bowels of this ship, hiding, exhausted emotionally, exhausted knowing that the outcome of this is not going to be good. Now they're casting lots. And sure enough, 
the lot fell on me. Yes, sir, the Lord's not going to leave me alone. And so they said to him, when the lot fell on him in verse 8, they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country? From what people are you? Now they're very curious about Jonah. He's the new guy on board. Perhaps all the crew were regulars and Jonah had paid the fare to join this voyage. So they know nothing about him apparently. And then Jonah confesses here. He says to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the obvious question you ask when you read that is, well then Jonah, why are you here? Why are you here in this ship? You have a calling upon your life to go to Nineveh. Jonah, why are you not in Nineveh? If in fact you fear the Lord your God, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea, why are you not yielding to that God and doing what that God says? Jonah, why are you here? Of course, when they tell him that in verse 10, then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? Uh, almost, would almost read into that to us. But he says, how can you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because apparently he had told them that. So, so Jonah's not a, not, in some ways he's not a wicked man. He's just a, he's just a man called of God to fulfill a commission, as it were, that is battling with his own flesh. So somewhere along the way, he says, well, why are you on board? He says, well, God's called, has a calling in my life and I'm running away from that. So they knew ahead of time that he was fleeing from God. They probably didn't make no deal of that or made no account. How many men are on board ships today who are fleeing from God? How many people are in all sorts of situations who are defying and disobeying God? So they probably made no big issue of that until the storm has come upon them and all their lives are in peril and the lot falls on him. So now that seems to have a lot of significance. Verse 11, so they say to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy and stunningly in verse 12, he says to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you for I know. I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Uh, this is where I think it's, it's really striking in this, in this book. Because this prophet's upset because there's an availability at least of mercy towards a, a, a nation that he abhors. God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. He knows that. And he's angry and he's defiant and rebellious because, because of mercy extended to them. And now he's put in a situation where the mercy extended to the crew of the ship is dependent upon them throwing him over the side. And so he's getting a demonstration about learning something about the mercy of God. And I think there's a lot of Christology in this in the sense that the mercy that God is expending to not only Nineveh, but to the crew of the ship, to Jonah himself, and later on even to a plant and a worm is a, is a mercy that is derived from the sacrifice of a life, not Jonah's, but of Christ. And so Jonah is learning something about that. So he at least understands that the, the key to your mercy and the calming of the seas is the sacrifice of a life. And in this context and in this circumstance, that life is mine. For I know that your peril is on account of me. So therefore, he actually instructs them to throw him over the side. Verse 13, 
seized their response. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even more stormier against them. So they were reluctant to fulfill that. Look, the idea here is to save life. How could, how could you think about yourself in that situation? Somebody comes to you and says, look, this is a terrible storm. The whole ship's going to be broken apart. But if you'll throw me over the side, then the storm will come. My thought as a fleshly thought would have been, well, why don't you just jump? <laughs> why don't you just jump? Well, we don't have to throw you. Jump over the side. and That way you'll be responsible for it. But no, he's putting it directly responsible to them. No, you, I have to be thrown over the side. The death has to come at your hands. You throw me over the side. Then I'll, then my life will be given and the sea will be calm. So they didn't want to do that. They don't, that's even unthinkable to them at this moment. So they row all the more harder. We got to get to sea. We got to work harder, men. And they all row, but the storm is becoming more stormy as they rowed harder. In fact, I think it would probably have been whatever they may have tried to get back to land and to get to safety, the, the intensity of the storm by the hand of God would have raised, um, raised in the same way. They're not going to make any progress. There is a rebellious prophet on board whom whom is bound to fulfill God's commission in his life, and he's going to do it, and God will not relent until that is accomplished. Finally, in verse 14, they call on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, apparently the Lord here, not any Lord, but the Lord of Jonah, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And upon that prayer in verse 15, tragically, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. I, I, I thought about when I was reading that, was, was Jonah resistant at all to that? Uh, in other words, it's one thing to know the solution. It's one thing to know what will bring the calm to the sea and therefore spare the lives of the shipmates uh, aboard this ship. It's one thing to know what would remedy that, but it's another thing to deliver that over. To deliver that. So they come to him. They offer up this prayer. Basically saying Lord forgive us. You have arranged these things. This man tells us that the calming of the sea. In our lives is dependent upon his life. Being sacrificed. So Father. So Lord God. We're going to do that. Forgive us. Don't hold us responsible for this blood. And they come to get Jonah. And he apparently yields to them. They, he'll hoist him up. Take him to the side. And off into the raging sea he goes. As the little girl in that video said and he went down 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 into the sea it's really a stunning narrative here verse 16 then the men feared the lord when the sea stopped its raging then the men feared the lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the lord and made vows we can debate on how authentic a relationship with God that was, but certainly they recognized that the God who was pursuing his prophet Jonah and for whose sake this great storm was upon them, that God removed this storm upon the sacrifice of Jonah. And they, at the very minimum, acknowledged the power of the, that God through their sacrifices. And so he goes down and then verse 17, here's, here's the mercy I remember as a kid, uh, I never really saw this, but here's the mercy the Lord provided for a great fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, the, fish, the fish saved Jonah's life. 
In fact, you see later in his prayer, I was going down to the bottom of the mountains. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I was drowning. And I cried out on the way down. Can you imagine the pressure? I mean, if you're down to the bottom and the seaweed, man, it kills my head to go to the bottom of a pool. You get thrown over the side of a ship or thrown over the side of a ship and you begin to sink into 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 feet of water. The pressure is incredible and you're almost certainly going to drown. That's the condition of Jonah. And there is mercy for Jonah in the, in the way, by the way of a great fish who swallows Jonah. So you see this theme of mercy unfolding. Jonah flees from the Lord. The Lord is merciful in the fact that he doesn't judge Jonah in that moment. He's extending mercy as it were to Nineveh through Jonah. Jonah runs. God's pursuing Jonah, but yet God is merciful to Jonah. The ship's crew has been brought into parable from Jonah's disobedience. God extends mercy to the crew themselves by the sacrifice of Jonah over the side. Jonah is falling into the sea, dying, dying as it were, drowning as it were. God provides mercy for Jonah with a fish who swallows Jonah. Fish goes back, spits Jonah eventually up on the land. Jonah goes and prophesies as God has told him to. When I read this book, that's what I keep seeing. Mercy, 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 mercy. God is loving and compassionate, slow to anger. That's why I was thinking about sometimes we, we act apart from that on the righteousness of God and the justice of God without that. And that's not honoring to God. If you're going to do the works of God or the works of Christ, do it with the heart of Christ. If you want to do the works of Paul, do it with the heart of Paul. We're, we're too inclined to want to do the works of these folks without having the heart of these folks. And that's the issue, I think, that God is working out in the heart of his prophet. And it seems to be an ongoing issue because you would think that after having been cast into the sea, after having been swallowed by a great fish, spending three days and three nights there and being spit up upon the land, the, the, the heart of the messenger might have been shaped a little differently when he went into Nineveh to preach. But we know from later on that he goes upon a high place and he watches to see if God will destroy the place. And he seems upset later on because he didn't. I hope you can see at the minimum that the issue the issue being dealt with and the revelation uh, being taught, I think, through the book of Jonah is not so much about dissecting the, the life of a rebellious prophet as it is of demonstrating through that prophet how reluctant we are to, to the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness and compassion of God and how okay we are if God acts without mercy in the lives of others, but how Wonderful it is when he acts with mercy in our own. I don't know why we're like that. I don't know why the sinful heart is inclined to enjoy the, every expression of mercy in my life and then sit in judgment as to which of you merit that same mercy. That puts me the distributor of mercy. And I think the message of this book is to Jonah and to all of Israel who had narrowed God down as it were. There's even implications here of God expanding out mercy towards the Gentiles, which Paul, I read one commentator that said Jonah and Paul were the only two missionaries to the Gentiles. Uh, Jonah early on and certainly Paul 
declared himself as that, the apostle to the Gentiles. The message here is that the loving kindness of God, Israel, yes, he chose you as his people, and he's going to manifest ultimately the glory of the Messiah through the seed of the woman all the way down through the history of this chosen people. But to the glory of him as he reaches to the ends of the earth of every tongue and tribe and of nations. But Jonah, you, a prophet of God, don't want that. You want, you want something else of God. Uh, we ought to rejoice that the mercy of God is extended to others. And that is challenging. We had some conversations this morning. And I think that's really challenging, especially when there are militant attitudes towards the things of God. And, and I, I know there's a fine balance between righteous indignation and just outright, outright disgust for the enemies of God and an indifference as to whether or not judgment falls upon them in the moment. That's not the heart of God. God is slow to anger. Why are we so quickly to anger? God tells me my anger does not accomplish the purposes of God. And so God is compassionate and long-suffering and extending mercy. And here's a prophet who don't understand that. Even while he himself is a recipient of that mercy, even while the crew that was saved because of his death and his sacrifice was a recipient of that mercy as well. See, all this mercy is flowing around, but Jonah doesn't want it to go to Nineveh. Uh, Think about that in your own life just as a point of application. Where do you not want the mercy of God? In whose life and in what situation are you okay if God doesn't extend mercy? Uh, If you can identify a place like that or a relationship like that or a person or a situation like that in your life, uh, there's some heart checking up to do there. Because it's a dangerous place to stand, to be standing in liberty, which was brought about in your life by the mercy and grace of God, while, while feeling in any way that God should not extend that to someone else. Maybe he will, maybe he won't according to his purposes. And that's in the, in the purview and the realm of God's sovereign decrees. I don't know who he will extend that mercy to, how effectual that mercy will be into their lives. But as a believer who themselves is alive and will live eternally with Christ upon the mercy of God, I dare not be stingy in regards to where God might extend that mercy. And I think that was the real issue with Jonah. I think that was the problem with Jonah's heart. Uh, It's interesting, but this book ends, and I don't know that that ever gets really worked out. Just to jump ahead, this is why I said it's one of the key passages of the text. At the end of everything, after everything unfolds, and we'll look at it in more detail, but in verse 11, God says to Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Should I not? Jonah, that's what you, you don't want that. And everything that's unfolded, you've been a recipient of that same mercy. You've been cast into the sea, dying. I I was merciful, sent a fish to to save you, rescued you from that. Mercy to the crew. Mercy's been flowing all through your experiences, Jonah. And here you sit on this hill awaiting the destruction of Nineveh. And when it doesn't happen and they get mercy, you're angry. You're angry. And God asked him plain, should I not have had mercy? Should I not have had compassion on Nineveh? You're upset about a plant that died. 
You didn't invest in that plant. You didn't raise it up. You didn't sustain its growth. You had, you had no contribution in the life of that plant at all. It grew up overnight, gave you a little shade, and died away. And you're, you're heartbroken, and you are crushed in regards to the outcome of this plant. And should I not have had mercy on Nineveh, where there are 120,000 imagio Deo who don't know their left hand from their right? You'd rather the plant, you're angry because I was, there was no mercy for the plant. And then you're, ang you're angry because there was no mercy for the plant, but you're okay if there's no mercy for 120,000 human beings. Something's wrong with Jonah, and the book ends like that. It ends like that. Uh, I don't want it to end like that in my life. When I read the book of Jonah, I don't want to be a Jonah. Number one, I don't want futility of flight. I don't want to be running from God. I don't want to be running away from obeying God. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be self-righteous and exclusive of God. I want him to extend his mercy as far out as his sovereign decrees desire. Because to do any less is to diminish the value and the merit of the sufferings of Christ himself. The fountain from which that mercy flows. Why would a believer want that to be diminished in any way whatsoever. I want the blood of Christ to reach as far as the, the intentions of God were in the crucifixion of Christ. I don't want, I don't want any of that uh, wasted or to accomplish something or not to accomplish all that it was deemed to, to be for in the cross. Uh, I think that's what the book is ultimately about. So thank you for being here. Stand with me and we'll close tonight. It's hard, uh, I was noticing in, in Jonah particularly, it's hard to narrow your sermon to a few verses in Jonah because it all connects so importantly. In fact, to narrow it down and to exclude some verses gives a skewed view of what the book is actually teaching. But it's a serious, uh, serious book of the Bible. Father, thank you for your word again. Lord, I'm thankful for the, your mercy as I was sharing this morning, Lord, when we think of the, of the value of the sufferings of Christ. And then we think of how the blood is so often tread underfoot. It is a dangerous thing for the wickedness and, and the wicked of the world to spit upon and to curse the very blood of Christ and the very mercy by which they take their next breath. It's a dangerous thing. And Father, it should not be the heart of the Christian ever to desire the the, un, the pouring out of the wrath of God upon them. Rather, it should be our desire that the glory of Christ and the cross of Christ be magnified by the extending of mercy even to the most wicked. And Father, we trust your sovereign hand. We know you have purposes in the world and, and some of those are in the secret counsel of your own will. And we, we can't wade into those divine and realms but, Father, as those who are recipients of this mercy, I pray that we dare not be reluctant or unwilling to see you extend that mercy to even our greatest enemies. Lord, I think that's at least one of the lessons of Job. So help us to bring these truths to bear in our own lives. Father, help us to be mindful and to be humbled by the fact that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. And Lord, help us to rejoice and to, and to celebrate when the mercy is extended in ways that we never anticipated. 
And Lord, when you call us to be a vessel of that, to be an instrument of the extending of that mercy, such as Jonah was, Father, help us to be obedient. Help us not to fly away and to seek to get out from under your presence, but to yield in those moments to the greater good and the greater glory of the display of your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen.